4: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. In October of 2018, a tragedy struck a synagogue in Squirrel Hill, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Paul Kengor's daughters were nearly in the line of fire. Here he is to recount that story.
6: Pray for us. I will call you later. That was the text message that we received from our 16-year-old daughter at 1016 a.m. on Saturday morning, October 27, 2018. As my wife and I drove toward Pittsburgh Strip District in downtown Pittsburgh. My wife called my daughter immediately. Are you okay? Were you in an accident? In a hushed voice, my daughter explained that she, our second daughter, and three friends, along with an adult friend of ours named Susie, were hiding in their van across the street from the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill section. They were there for a Saturday morning retreat at a house across the street. They had arrived at 9.55 a.m. They had initially stopped the van directly across from the synagogue on Shady Avenue, which would have been straight in the line of fire between the police and the shooter. It's gonna be
2: at 5898 Wilkins Avenue, Tree of Life Synagogue, 3480,
7: you copy?
6: They were planning to hop out and walk to the house. Mercifully, the driver, Susie, decided almost on a whim, a gut feel, she later conceded, to find a parking spot so she could walk the girls inside. Just as she moved to a spot a little further away, police cars began flying in. Okay,
8: um, initial reports of an active shooter, one down in the Tree of Life Synagogue Zone
2: 4.
6: As the girl struggled to assess the chaos, the police parked sideways in order to use their vehicles as shields for the shootout. The street was instantly closed off. Susie told the girls not to get out. They all sat on the floor of the van, ducked and listened and prayed and worried. We received that text message about 20 minutes later. Shortly after we talked to our daughter, Susie and the girls made a careful decision to drive a little further away. Susie did a U-turn and went down the street just enough to pull into a driveway that allowed them to put a few houses and buildings of separation between them, the synagogue, and the gunfire. After nearly an hour of chaos and confusion, the girls decided to abandon the van and make a run for it.
3: uh, 315 base, we are pinned down by gunfire. He's firing out of the front of the building with an
0: automatic weapon. Copy. Can't get any closer, we're under fire.
6: They dashed across backyards and over fences to meet a relative of Susie who lived down the street. They could hear gunfire in the background. They met Susie's relative in his getaway car. They escaped. They got free. It was a scary day. It was also evil, an act of evil against our beloved Jewish brothers and sisters at a peaceful Saturday worship service. And while my loved ones were okay, the same cannot be said of everyone in that synagogue, 11 of which were murdered. I've since returned to that spot about a half a dozen times since last October 27th. In fact, I'll be there again this Saturday with the girls. It's never the same. Each time I go, I pause the look of the synagogue and say a prayer. I've since talked to other parents who had dropped off their girls at the retreat center that Saturday morning. One of them, a dad, marvels at the conversation that he and his wife had had that fateful morning his wife typically dropped off his daughter and then sat in the car in the drop-off lane at the tree of life synagogue where she waited and worked on her laptop for a couple of hours on this morning though the dad again another strange gut feel oddly decided that he wanted to drive his daughter to the retreat center he wasn't sure why but he just tried to convince his wife to stay at home he prevailed and talked her into it she stayed at home for some strange reason they made that decision had they not His wife might have been one of the first ones shot that morning.
2: The suspect in the shooting is in custody. We have multiple casualties inside the synagogue. We have three officers who have been shot. And at this time we have no more information because we are still clearing the building and
6: trying to figure out uh, if if the situation is safe, if there are any more threats inside the building. So that's all we have at this point. They were very lucky, so were we. My wife and I, of course, are so grateful that our loved ones didn't get caught in the crossfire. My kids had only one scrape, one of the girls, from hopping over a fence. And yet I imagine that many of the families of the 11 dead asked why God hadn't spared their loved ones. I agree. That's one of those timeless questions that we all ask. It's a question that believers of all stripes, and the Jewish people in particular, have asked since literally the time of Job. It's a mystery why some leave this world in a violent way, seemingly prematurely, while others seem to stay longer in this valley of tears, and if and when certain people are protected and others are or aren't. I have no answer there, though I know that God is the author of life and God wasn't the one pulling the trigger in that synagogue. The evil that transpired there was not an act of benevolence by a loving God. I also feel confident in saying this, the true tree of life is not an earthly one, but an eternal one. This world, unlike the heavenly paradise we seek, is full of sin and rot. The trees in this world, they decay and they die. Eternal life and perfect bliss are not reachable in this world, they come in the next. Now that might be small consolation, I understand, to the grieving and hurting loved ones of the tree of life synagogue, But honestly, I think it's truly the best that we can say.
4: And we've been listening to Paul Kengor, who teaches at nearby Grove City College. And by the way, that's where our own Robbie Davis went to college. And what a story he told indeed. And Paul put it so beautifully. Why do some leave this world prematurely at the hands of a madman in a mass murder like this while others don't? I don't think Paul could have put it better, and I don't think there's a better way to put it. It's a mystery. And in the end, well, we can't put ourselves in God's, in God's mind, and it's a mystery. Paul Kengor's story, his family's story of a tragedy in Pennsylvania that still lives with him today and will live on with him forever. This is Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, as you well know. And often it's not the rich and the famous or the people who've innovated or done extraordinary things and everybody knows about. It's the, it's the ordinary folks in this country doing extraordinary things. And that brings us to the story of Wendy Caldwell. She is the oldest cadet to graduate from Houston's police academy. Faith brings us the story.
3: Wendy Caldwell is a 54-year-old mounted patrol officer. This is actually her second time working for the Houston Police Department. She first went to the academy in 1993 and graduated that same year. She was then assigned to a patrol station.
7: After having three years of service, then I applied and went to the mounted patrol unit, um, where I stayed until 1998, and, uh, during that time, I had gotten married, and uh, we had our first child. It just really felt like it was a better calling to stay at home and raise the kids. So that's what I did. I chose to resign my position at the police department and raise the kids. And that's what I did for the next 18 years. I got to experience all kinds of things. You know, you know everything that you you hope you get to see when your kids are growing up. There, when they say their first word, or when they when they take their first steps, and. Uh, You know, I got to be that that mom that drove the kids to dance and baseball practice, and I was privileged to homeschool my kids for a good portion of their uh, academic years, and it 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 was um, much different than being you know going going to be a full time mom, where I mean there is no manual to being a mother; you just are. And you figure it out along the way, and if you're lucky, you have family and friends that can help you along the way. But for the most part, it's it's kind of a steep learning curve, you know. And you, um, when the kids are little, my kids were 15 months apart. It's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know. And it's not like going to a nine to five job every day. Um, there's no sick days. There's no time off. There's no vacation days. There there isn't any of that stuff. You. You are on call twenty four seven you know three hundred sixty five days a year, but on the flip side of that, the reward is it's just tremendous. it's It's incredible to i wouldn't I wouldn't have traded it for the world, but I did go through a small identity you know shift there, and I realized uh sitting on the riding lawnmower one summer. Um, one summer day driving around i said you know life is good I, I get to i get to do this and i get to raise my kids and I, and um, life is good so after after being married uh... we were married almost twenty years uh... no we were married twenty years at that point because we were married a couple years before we started having children and um, we went through a really rough time and ended up getting a divorce um, and that was, that was really tough. Um, so I had to, you know, think about, well, gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I, I, I've got to go back to work. Um, what am I going to do? I haven't done anything for the last 18 years. I have some college. I don't have a college degree. Um, and my, my resume basically says stay-at-home mom and who's gonna hire me? I'm 50, almost, I was 52 years of age at the time, and and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? Coincidentally, I was playing softball, a co-ed softball with uh, a group of friends, and uh, one of them just happened to be a sergeant in the recruiting division for HPD. And I had done some visiting with an old friend of mine from the Harris County Sheriff's Department, and she, she suggested that I attempt to uh, challenge the TCOL exam, which is a state licensing exam, which means I would study and then challenge the apply to challenge the exam and then once I did that I could I could be certified again. and then I would have to have an agency pick up my commission. So I was chatting with my recruiting sergeant friend and uh, asked him how difficult he thought it would be to do that. and he says, "Well, why? Are you thinking about coming back? And I said, well, I don't think uh, I'm eligible to come back to HPD. And he goes, well, hold on a second. Let me let me double check that. So he checked with his lieutenant, and apparently I was eligible. There was a, a gentleman, coincidentally, that was a brother to uh, a gentleman that I had graduated with the first time in the academy, that came back to the department at the age of 50 and he set precedents for the police department that if you were a former HPD officer and had left as long as you could fulfill the the all the requirements and do the physical um, physical training that you were eligible to come back and so I was able to come back to HPD uh, with the stipulation that I had to complete the entire six-and-a-half month Academy again so That process began and um, came back August 29th of um, 2016 and graduated the academy again in uh, March 16th of 2017. Uh, The first time I went through, I was 29 years of age and graduated at 30, so I was you know back then i i was into I, I kept myself in pretty good shape i i still do but you know there's a, there's a big difference between 30 and 50 and <laughs> most people figure that out as they age but um the this time around it was much more it was much more difficult they had ramped up the physical uh, the the pt portion of it the physical training so it was a lot harder than it was last time Uh, We did a lot more running. We did a lot more hills. We did, uh, you know It was like a a basic training uh, Army basic training, you know, we did we did log carries and and all kinds of stuff You know, we did fireman carries we did we did, you know, the whole gamut of physical training that you would expect to see in any boot camp or um, Police Academy training and so my body did not hold up as well this time. I had a lot of um, I had some tendonitis going on. I had some, you know, but I but I struggled through it, and I always maintained um, where I needed to be, and um, and still still graduated. You know, 17 out of out of 67 in my class. That and that included all my scores: my academic, my driving, my shooting, and my physical training, as well. So. I thought I didn't think that was too bad for graduating '53 <laughs> and number 17 in my class. What was it like being so much older than everyone else? We we had a conversation at one point when we were in the, <clears throat> in the gym, and some of the some of the younger ones were talking about some stuff that they were doing, and 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 I I looked at them and I said, "Wait a minute, what year were you born?" <laughs> We were chuckling about it, and uh, most of them were born in, like, 93, 94, and I said, oh, my gosh, I was already a police officer. <laughs> my nickname in the academy, they used to call me Mom. At first, I think they were a little concerned that I could even make it. Um, but then about halfway through the academy, or, or probably a little sooner than that, they were they were all rooting for me, and they, they were there in support and, you know... Um, And I was kind of there. It was nice. They, they, They treated me like a mom, you know? It was nice.
4: And my goodness, she was scared to become a mom, and then she was scared to become a cop again. And that happens in our lives, folks, and that's why we tell you stories like this and from our subjects' mouths themselves. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story after these commercial messages.
8: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Relax and unwind tonight with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler elves. So as another busy work week flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.
4: And we continue with the story of Wendy Caldwell. She had not worked for almost 20 years after staying at home with her kids. After she got a divorce, Wendy decided to go back to work for the Houston PD. That would make her the oldest cadet to graduate from that academy. We return to Wendy talking about how the other recruits in the academy treated her.
7: They used to razz me all the time, and there was one guy in particular, and he used to he used to kid me all the time, and he'd say, "You know, when you graduate, we're gonna we're gonna get you a life alert." And I said, "Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate you." <laughs> and uh, he jokingly said one time, uh, "He goes, well, maybe if we don't get you a life alert, we'll have to get you a walker when you graduate." And uh, coincidentally, I did I did graduate and cross the stage on a walker because during the last phase of training. Um, my femur was broken and uh so i had to finish the academy on a walker <laughs> wendy actually broke her femur
3: during the final academy exercise
7: How did- it happened during an exercise called red man which is the culmination of your physical training for the entire academy and um they, basically what our Red man does is it prepares you as a new police officer to understand what it feels like to be in, a, in the fight of your life. Um, because a lot of times you'll have recruits that come in that, that may have never ever been in a fight in their life. Um, you know, a scuffle, or, and most of them have never been punched in the face. So this is a little just a little taste of that to help you understand what it's like when you're chasing a suspect and you catch them and they don't want to be arrested and you guys are fighting um and that's it's 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 um it's intense it's exhausting um and then you're fighting under the um exhaustion and uh you know you're what it's like to fight with that diminished oxygen and mental capacity, what your thinking is gonna be like during that time. Um, so it gives you a lot of different um, things to think about, um, but it's used as a training tool at the very end of the academy. So, And unfortunately, during my session, um, the, my red man gave me a, 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 a femur strike with the knee, and uh, and broke my leg. Fortunately for me, I had completed um, all of the TCOL requirements necessary for the academy, with the exception of taking my exam. So at that point, it was all I had to do was take the exam um, uh, to finish the academy um, and then graduate, which was in two weeks. So they were talking about recycling me and, you know, there was, it, it was a little scary for me at the time because I, the first thought that went through my mind was, I went all this way and I'm not gonna get to graduate. I'm I'm gonna have to do this whole thing again. And I, I knew in my mind that I physically didn't think I had another six and a half months in me to do it. So it was, it was tough. I mean, it was emotionally, it really, it really messed with me a little bit because I thought, I'm not going to, this can't be happening. So luckily for me, um, my captain at the time over the academy, she was, they talked about it and they were like, oh no, she's done everything. All she has to do is take the exam. Um, My academic scores were, there wasn't an issue with that. So I took my my state licensing exam and passed that with flying colors, and they allowed me, graciously allowed me to graduate with my class.
3: So how did being an officer in her 20s differ to being a police officer in her 50s?
7: I think your perspective changes dramatically once you have kids, and you realize that You're not this invincible, you're not this invincible person anymore. Um, You also, you have these little human beings to take care of. Um, So it changes your perspective on things a lot. You're a lot more cautious about things. You're, you know, and I also realize too that, that my age plays a little bit, more into that factor as well. I, I, I'm i not as fast as I used to be. My reflexes are probably not as quick. I'm probably a little smarter though because <laughs> I can see it coming quicker. But uh, yeah, there's just a, there's a whole lot of... You, it's just everything. Your perspective is the biggest change in the whole thing. You know, back when I was 30 I was invincible. You know, you get up, you're, every day you're excited to go to work, you're running and gunning and, and loving, loving the the chase and the thrill of the chase. And now it's like, well, it's fun, but I'm not going to get all excited about it like I used to. (laughs) I need to be a little more cautious. (laughs) How did her kids respond to her going back to the police force? My kids were awesome. They were so supportive of me. And, um, They really were my biggest fans. They really, really were my, um, on the really, really hard days, you know, I just remember what they, that they were there and that I was doing this for them, you know, a lot of it was for them. So uh, when we were, a very poignant moment for me was when we were putting on our uniforms for graduation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on a walker and, you know, getting my uniform on and I uh, zip up that uniform shirt and um, I actually started crying because it was, it was a very emotional moment for me to realize that I had earned that, that shirt and badge and the privilege to, to wear that uniform one more time. And my kids were, they were amazing at my graduation. They were so, they were so excited. I think they were more excited than I was.
3: <laughs> what are Wendy's future plans?
7: I am actually 55 now. I graduated at the academy at 53, so I'm 55 now. I'll be 56, coming up here shortly. Um, I am back at the mounted patrol unit, so I get to I'll probably, I'll probably stay here and end my career over here. It'll be a long one, but I'm not quite sure how many years we can do at this point, but as long as I can, I'm gonna stay here. You're never too old to do what you really wanna do, and sometimes when it's really, really hard, that's when you, that's when you get the best reward. You know that's, This was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done but it's also been the most rewarding.
3: I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories.
4: And thank you to Wendy Caldwell, and great job, as always, Faith, on this story. I'm not sure how many years I have, but I'm going to stay as long as I can. She was doing it for her kids, and yet her kids, well, they were cheerleading on Mom. And it's a beautiful thing when people do these kind of things. We also got to hear... Well, what cops train for, right? And the circumstances they have to get into in their lives. They actually get trained to get punched in the face. This is Our American Stories, a story of Wendy Caldwell, a story of love, a story of compassion. And in the end, what nerve and guts to go back into the academy in your 50s. What a choice, a beautiful choice. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
8: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Relax and unwind tonight with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler elves. So as another busy work week flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a
1: Keebler Sandies. Happy International Women's Day.
4: And we continue with our American Stories and with our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And today, Alex Cortez brings us a story that gives us a fascinating look inside the pharmaceutical industry, one we generally don't get. Use Alex. At 29 years old, Bruce Paddock bought a bankrupt pharmaceutical company for $20,000, and everyone thought he was crazy.
2: I had a lab technician, an office manager, and me. So there were three of us. And now I continued to work as a pharmacist nights and weekends. I worked part-time for Target, Walgreens. I worked for every pharmacy along Lake Street, which was in the South Minneapolis area. So I would work the 5 to 11 shift, or I'd work weekends because I had to put food on the table because the first two to three years of Paddock Laboratories, I wasn't taking a salary. I mean, there was a period of time, I remember I was working 80 hours a week. I was known throughout the city as have spatula, will travel. I would work for anybody, anybody would call me up, "Uh, Bruce, I've got 11 to 7 shift. I take it, you know, a lot of times, a lot of these independent pharmacies, they only got a day off a week. And so they would pay cash and they pay a lot of cash just to get a break, to, to, to get a Saturday night or a Sunday morning break. So I would work, uh, I think at one time, I counted, I over a two year period of time, I had worked in over 50 community pharmacies in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. But it was challenging. I enjoyed the challenge. I was young. I was ambitious. I was, um, as they say, pretty cocksure of myself. Our first year in sales were, in fact, they still have the fa- the the first the very first financial statement, the P and L, and the balance sheet from 1978, and uh, we had gross sales of 183 thousand dollars. But by 1980. We had grown the sales up to about four hundred thousand, and there was enough revenue and enough cash flow I could actually start taking a salary. So I, I retired from my, uh, my part-time pharmacy roles, slowly built a business. Uh, in the end, what I think we had grown to about three hundred million in sales, and I had five hundred and forty employees. Now it took me thirty-five years to do it, but in a lot of. Uh, ups and downs but generally up i was always proud of the fact that each year we never had a year of down sales each year we posted bigger sales than the previous year so it was a upward scale, starting at $183,000 to $300 million.
4: Strangely enough, a federal law really helped drive their growth. The Hatch-Waxman Act of 1984 made it much easier to make generics, drugs that have the same chemical characteristics as the well-known branded drugs that pharmaceutical companies first pioneer, and are created and sold at a fraction of the price.
2: You know, when I was a young pharmacist, there, there actually were generics, but they were very rarely used because they were considered low quality, not equivalent to the branded product. And of course, big pharma, you know, the Merck's, the Lilly's, the Park davises all the major drug firms spent a lot of money in sales and marketing of their products. So generics were kind of a bad name back in the 70s when I first got involved in pharmacy. In fact, even in my community and hospital pharmacy days, I don't think I ever remember ever dispensing a generic. But it really was because of the standards the FDA set down in the uh, Hatch-Waxman Drug Act that really gave generic pharmaceuticals credibility because up until this period of time, we had approved that a product was both safe and effective which required very extensive clinical studies, was really out of the reach of a little company like Paddock Laboratories. We did not have the the millions of dollars to do the research and the safety studies. And so now they created a pathway by which generic pharmaceuticals could be developed. So now we didn't have to spend money proving a product was safe and effective. The branded product had already paid that money and got FDA approval and usually came with it a certain patent life. Well, in anticipation of a patent expiring, we were able to look at these products, deformulate the products, manufacture them. Now, all we had to do, we didn't have to prove safety efficacy. All we had to do was prove bioequivalency, both what's called in vitro and in vivo. In vitro means that your product has to be physically identical, the same excipients, the same binders, the same chemical makeup, in vivo meaning inside the body, or delivering the same concentration of drug and getting the same concentration of blood levels to elicit a therapeutic response. So you're literally duplicating the branded product, but still proving bioequivalence is still an expensive endeavor because you have to do clinical studies where you do a clinical studies with a branded product. You do your clinical studies with your generic product and you have to be within not less than 90% and not greater than 110% of the therapeutic blood levels of the branded product. And again, because of the standards that the FDA, generic pharmaceuticals became more acceptable. And as they became more acceptable, the percentage of prescriptions throughout the decades has grown, in fact, I don't even, I think it's somewhere up in the 80% of all prescriptions dispensed today are generic pharmaceuticals. Where when I first entered pharmacy in the early 70s, going back 45 years ago, it was zero. It might've been maybe one or 2% generic. And I think generic pharmaceuticals have really brought the cost of drug coverage down dramatically. I can tell you that if a branded product is selling for $100 per dose or per bottle or per unit or per anything, that if you're the first bioequivalent generic on the marketplace, you're gonna sell your product for about 70 cents or about 70% of the branded cost. Once the second generic comes out, now you have a competitor. And again, it's business 101, the more competitors you have, the more competitive or the lower the price gets. So now the, the price of that generic product is now down to about 50% or about 50 cents on the dollar. As the third and fourth generic come out, the price continues to drop and you have six or more generics in a marketplace, the product can be down as low as a nickel or five cents. My initial reason for getting into the business, it was challenging, it was fun, it was profitable, and I could make make money. But I think once you've been in it for a period of time, you start to realize that you are really bringing affordable healthcare in a lot of products to the marketplace that increases the quality of life for a lot of Americans. And it's, it's especially humbling when you get letters, you know, from the public explaining how taking your product saves somebody's life or recovered from some serious illness. And there's countless numbers of lives that you've influenced and you, you don't realize it because you're, you're in your little world of my 540 employees and we're trying to get a business logistically to function and deliver a quality product, but there's 330 million people out out there in America and that you've influenced millions of lives that you don't even know, but you quickly realize that you do have an effect upon a lot of people's lives and it does give you a certain degree of satisfaction, a certain degree of pleasure that you're contributing you're contributing to society you're helping people many people you don't even know and I think that gives you a certain sense of uh, well you know we're doing doing our our part what I was able to do in our great country I don't think I could have done in any other environment I couldn't do it in Europe I don't think I could do it in any other continent, I think the opportunity here in the United States for anybody in any vocation is, is limitless. If you have boundless energy, you have goals, you have a, objectives, I think there's more opportunity in America today, even today, I still believe America is the land of opportunity. For those who are willing to work for it, I think there's more opportunity in America than there is in any other country. And uh, I think there's a reason why a lot of people want into the United States. I know very few people who want to leave the United States. We have freedoms. We can worship. You know, the laws protect us. We have boundless limits of what we can do in this country and we we should be thankful for that. I still think it's the greatest, greatest country in the world.
4: and great job as always by alex and great work getting the interview and a special thanks to bruce paddock and what a life story struggling and working hard to make his small business grow the story of the generic drug business in a sense all of it here on our american story
1: ready to celebrate international women's day little hands
3: and minds can start learning anytime the good and the beautiful gives you everything you need to spark a love of lifelong learning give your preschoolers engaging hands-on material built on high academic standards and wholesome values find a variety of free resources and affordable curriculum to ignite your child's curiosity start your journey now at goodandbeautiful.com the good and the beautiful bring home a love of learning